This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Anderson. Irawan by Samuel Butler. Chapter 4 The Saddle. I cooed to him, but he would not hear. I ran after him, but he had got too good a start. Then I sat down on a stone and thought the matter carefully over. It was plain that Chowbok had designedly attempted to keep me from going at this valley, yet he had shown no unwillingness to follow me anywhere else. What could this mean, unless that I was now upon the route by which alone the mysteries of the great ranges could be revealed? What then should I do, go back at the very moment when it had become plain that I was on the right scent? Hardly. Yet to proceed alone would be both difficult and dangerous. It would be bad enough to return to my master's run and pass through the rocky gorges, with no chance of help from another should I get into difficulty. But to advance for any considerable distance without a companion would be next door to madness. Accidents which are slight when there is another at hand, as the spraining of an ankle, or the falling into some place whence escape would be easy by means of an outstretched hand and a bit of rope, may be fatal to one who is alone. The more I pondered, the less I liked it, and yet the less I could make up my mind to return when I looked at the saddle at the head of the valley, and noted the comparative ease with which its smooth sweep of snow might be surmounted. I seemed to see my way almost from my present position to the very top. After much thought, I resolved to go forward until I should come to some place which was really dangerous, but then to return. I should thus, I hoped, at any rate reach the top of the saddle, and satisfy myself as to what might be on the other side. I had no time to lose, for it was now between ten and eleven in the morning. Fortunately, I was well equipped, for on leaving the camp and the horses at the lower end of the valley, I had provided myself, according to my custom, with everything that I was likely to want for four or five days. Chowbok had carried half, but had dropped his whole swag, I suppose at the moment of his taking flight, for I came upon it when I ran after him. I had, therefore, his provisions as well as my own. Accordingly, I took as many biscuits as I thought I could carry, and also some tobacco, tea, and a few matches. I rolled all these things, together with a flask nearly full of brandy, which I kept in my pocket for fear lest Chowbok should get a hold of it, inside my blankets and strapped them very tightly, making the hole into a long roll of some seven feet in length and six inches in diameter. Then I tied the two ends together and put the hole round my neck and over one shoulder. This is the easiest way of carrying a heavy swag, for one can rest oneself by shifting the burden from one shoulder to the other. I strapped my pannikin and a small axe about my waist, and thus equipped began to ascend the valley, angry at having been misled by Chowbok, but determined not to return till I was compelled to do so. I crossed and recrossed the stream several times without difficulty, for there were many good fords. At one o'clock I was at the foot of the saddle. For four hours I mounted, the last two on snow, where the going was easier. By five, I was within ten minutes of the top, in a state of greater excitement, I think, than I had ever known before. Ten minutes more, and the cold air from the other side came rushing upon me. A glance, 
I was not on the main range. Another glance. There was an awful river, muddy and horribly angry, roaring over an immense riverbed thousands of feet below me. It went round to the westward, and I could see no farther up the valley, save that there were enormous glaciers which must extend round the source of the river and from which it must spring. Another glance, and then I remained motionless. There was an easy pass in the mountains directly opposite to me, through which I caught a glimpse of an immeasurable extent of blue and distant plains. Easy? Yes, perfectly easy. Grasped nearly to the summit, which was, as it were, an open path between two glaciers, from which an inconsiderable stream came tumbling down over rough but very possible hillsides, till it got down to the level of the great river and formed a flat where there was grass and a small bush of stunted timber. Almost before I could believe my eyes, a cloud had come up from the valley on the other side, and the plains were hidden. What wonderful luck was mine! Had I arrived five minutes later, the cloud would have been over the pass, and I should not have known of its existence. Now that the cloud was there, I began to doubt my memory, and to be uncertain whether it had been more than a blue line of distant vapor that had filled up the opening. I could only be certain of this much namely that the river in the valley below must be the one next to the northward of that which flowed past my master's station of this there could be no doubt could i however imagine that my luck should have led me up a wrong river in search of a pass and yet brought me to the spot where i could detect the one weak place in the fortifications of a more northern basin this was too improbable but even as I doubted, there came a rent in the cloud opposite, and a second time I saw the blue lines of heaving downs growing gradually fainter, and retiring into a far space of plain. It was substantial. There had been no mistake whatsoever. I had hardly made myself perfectly sure of this ere the rent in the clouds joined up again, and I could see nothing more. What then should I do? The night would be upon me shortly and I was already chilled with standing still after the exertion of climbing. To stay where I was would be impossible. I must either go backwards or forwards. I found a rock which gave me shelter from the evening wind and took a good pull at the brandy flask, which immediately warmed and encouraged me. I asked myself, could I descend upon the riverbed beneath me? It was impossible to say what precipices might prevent my doing so. If I were on the riverbed, dare I cross the river? I am an excellent swimmer, yet once in the frightful rush of waters I should be hurled whithersoever it willed, absolutely powerless. Moreover, there was my swag. I should perish of cold and hunger if I left it, but I should certainly be drowned if I attempted to carry it across the river. These were serious considerations, but the hope of finding an immense tract of available sheep country, which I was determined that I would monopolize as far as I possibly could, sufficed to outweigh them, and in a few minutes I felt resolved that having made so important a discovery as a pass into a country which was probably as valuable as that on our own side of the ranges, I would follow it up and ascertain its value, even though I should pay the penalty of failure with life itself. The more I thought, the more determined I became either to win fame and perhaps fortune by entering upon this unknown world, or give up life in the attempt. In fact, I felt the life would be no longer valuable if I were to have seen so great a prize and refused to grasp at the possible profits therefrom. I had still an hour of good daylight during which I might begin my descent onto some suitable camping ground, but there was not a moment to be lost. 
At first I got along rapidly, for I was on the snow, and sank into it enough to save me from falling, though I went forward straight down the mountainside as fast as I could. But there was less snow on this side than on the other, and I had soon done with it, getting on to a coombe of dangerous and very stony ground, where a slip might have given me a disastrous fall. But I was careful with my speed and got safely to the bottom, where there were patches of coarse grass and an attempt here and there at brushwood. What was below this I could not see. I advanced a few hundred yards further, and found that I was on the brink of a frightful precipice, which no one in his senses would attempt descending. I bethought me, however, to try the creek which drained the coombe, and see whether it might not have made itself a smoother way. In a few minutes I found myself at the upper end of a chasm in the rocks, something like twill do, only on a greatly larger scale. The creek had found its way into it, and had worn a deep channel through a material which appeared softer than that upon the other side of the mountain. I believe it must have been a different geological formation, though I regret to say that I cannot tell what it was. I looked at this rift in great doubt. Then I went a little way on either side of it, and found myself looking over the edge of horrible precipices on to the river, which roared some four or five thousand feet below me. I dared not think of getting down at all, unless I committed myself to the rift of which I was hopeful, when I reflected that the rock was soft, and that the water might have worn its channel tolerably even through the whole extent. The darkness was increasing with every minute, but I should have twilight for another half-hour, so I went in the chasm, though by no means without fear, and resolved to return and camp, and then try some other path next day, should I come to any serious difficulty. In about five minutes I had completely lost my head. The side of the rift became hundreds of feet in height, and overhung so that I could not see the sky. It was full of rocks, and I had many falls and bruises. I was wet through from falling into the water, of which there was no great volume, but it had such a force that I could do nothing against it. Once I had to leap down a not inconsiderable waterfall into a deep pool below, and my swag was so heavy that I very nearly drowned. I had indeed a hair's breadth escape but, as luck would have it, providence was on my side. Shortly afterwards I began to fancy that the rift was getting wider, and that there was more brushwood. Presently I found myself on an open grassy slope, and feeling my way a little further along the stream, I came upon a flat place with wood where I could camp comfortably, which was well, for it was now quite dark. My first care was for my matches. Were they dry? The outside of my swag had got completely wet but on undoing the blankets I found things warm and dry within. How thankful I was! I lit a fire and was grateful for its warmth and company. I made myself some tea and ate two of my biscuits, my brandy I did not touch, for I had little left and might want it when my courage failed me. All that I did I did almost mechanically, for I could not realize my situation to myself. Beyond knowing that I was alone and that return through the chasm which I had just descended would be impossible. It is a dreadful feeling that of being cut off from all one's kind. I was still full of hope and built golden castles for myself as soon as I was warmed with food and fire. But I do not believe that any man could long retain his reason in such solitude, unless he had the companionship of animals. One begins doubting one's own identity. I remember deriving comfort even from the sight of my blankets and the sound of my watch ticking things which seemed to link me to other people, but the screaming of the wood-hens frightened me, as also a chattering bird which I had never heard before, 
and which seemed to laugh at me, though I soon got used to it, and before long could fancy that it was many years since I had first heard it. I took off my clothes and wrapped my inside blanket about me, till my things were dry. The night was very still, and I made a roaring fire, so I soon got warm, and at last I could put my clothes on again. Then I strapped my blanket round me and went to sleep as near the fire as I could. I dreamed that there was an organ placed in my master's wool shed. The wool shed faded away and the organ seemed to grow and grow amid a blaze of brilliant light till it became like a golden city upon the side of a mountain, with rows upon rows of pipes set in cliffs and precipices, one above the other, and in mysterious caverns like that of Fingal, within whose depths I could see the burnished pillars gleaming. In the front there was a flight of lofty terraces, at the top of which I could see a man with his head buried forward toward a keyboard, and his body swaying from side to side amid the storm of huge, arpeggioed harmonies that came crashing overhead and round. Then there was one who touched me on the shoulder and said, Do you not see? It is Handel. But I had hardly apprehended, and was trying to scale the terraces and get near him, when I awoke, dazzled with the vividness and distinctness of the dream. A piece of wood had burned through, and the ends had fallen into the ashes with a blaze. This, I supposed, had both given me my dream and robbed me of it. I was bitterly disappointed, and sitting up on my elbow, came back to reality and my strange surroundings as best I could. I was thoroughly aroused. Moreover, I felt a foreshadowing as though my attention were arrested by something more than the dream, although no sense in particular was as yet appealed to. I held my breath and waited, and then I heard. Was it fancy? Nay. I listened again and again, and I did hear a faint and extremely distant sound of music, like that of an Aeolian harp, borne upon the wind which was blowing fresh and chill from the opposite mountains. The roots of my hair thrilled. I listened, but the wind had died, and fancying that it must have been the wind itself, no, on a sudden I remembered the noise which Chowbok had made in the wool shed. Yes, it was that. Thank heaven, whatever it was, it was over now. I reasoned with myself and recovered my firmness. I became convinced that I had only been dreaming more vividly than usual. Soon I began even to laugh and think what a fool I was to be frightened at nothing, reminding myself that even if I were to come to a bad end, it would be no such dreadful matter at all. I said my prayers, a duty which I had too often neglected, and in a little time fell into a really refreshing sleep, which lasted till broad daylight and restored me. I rose, and searching among the embers of my fire, I found a few live coals and soon had a blaze again. I got breakfast and was delighted to have the company of several small birds, which hopped about me and perched on my boots and hands. I felt comparatively happy, but I can assure the reader that I had had a far worse time of it than I have told him, and I strongly recommend him to remain in Europe if he can, or at any rate in some country which has been explored and settled, rather than go into places where others have not been before him. Exploring is delightful to look forward to and back upon, but it is not comfortable at the time, unless it be of such an easy nature as not to deserve the name. End of chapter 4